Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another sly episode of Inspiration Point. I am Andrew. And I am Adam. And we have a special guest with us today. We are joined by a man who needs no introduction, but is going to get one anyway. Uh, he's the <laughs> author of several RPG-related books, which include The Lazy Dungeon Master and its spiritual successor, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. He also created SlyFlourish.com, a huge repository of helpful articles and different bits of advice for uh, different categories, such as being new to D&D, lazy dungeon mastering, DM tools, advice, encounter building, inspiration, running D&D online, campaign outlines, adventure guides, and even breakdowns of many of the published Wizards of the Coast adventures, such as Horde of the Dragon Queen, Tomb of Annihilation, Storm King's Thunder, and Curse of Strahd. And that's just scraping the surface. So without any further ado, we are thrilled to welcome Mike Shea, also known as the one and only Sly Flourish, to the show. Welcome, Mike. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a great pleasure. Absolutely. I'm thrilled you could be here. How are things? Things are good. Yeah, I can't I can't complain. Staying busy, playing a lot of D and D. And uh There you, you know, go. Played, uh, yeah, played D and D in person for like, I don't know, thirty years, and then had to play online for sixteen months straight and just got back to our <laughs> first in person game. But now I'm reading the news and oh, we may be man. back to going online again. So who knows? <laughs> Oh I my know, goodness! Right. Well, congratulations that, on at least being able to yeah. get back to to in person. I, I take it you prefer it that way. I, I'm, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, and and my players aren't sure either, right? Like some <laughs> some of us have been playing online and we're real comfortable with it now. And I kind of wired my style around the tools that I have online, and now I don't have those tools again. Mm-hmm. And and I it was like relearning D and D again when I when I had everybody at the table. What are some of the like preferences you have like one versus the other? Like, I mean, yeah, you get some tools, but you know, particularly within the vein of being the lazy dungeon master, right? Like how does being online help that versus um, being in person? What are the advantages? It is way easier to share uh, images online uh, when everybody's, when everybody's in discord, we, we use discord to play we have a little maps and handouts channel and it's so easy for me to just grab art from anywhere on the internet that either represents an NPC or an area mm. or a map or just a thematic piece or something that I would generally use as a handout. And it's, I, I can, I can use like the lasso, the lasso copy and paste to grab just a piece mm. of a map that I want to show and then copy that into the, into the buffer and then throw that in the maps and handouts. And now after doing that for hundreds of games, it's really easy and fast for me to do that. And being back at the table again, I'm like, what do I print all these out? Like, you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah. some, some people have like a big monitor and I'm back to like flipping my book around and putting my hand over the important parts and showing them the oh picture. My you know? And that's, you know, it's weird. So, so yeah, that, that, that's one thing we're playing online has had a big difference. Obviously another big one is not having to go anywhere. And it's, I, I attendance at my games went way up. Like people were much less frequently absent when we played online than when we played in person, because like it turns out driving 40 minutes each way can be a pain in the ass. 
and going down oh, to your basement you is know? not a pain in the ass. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so those those were definitely. I think having that common text channel along with voice and video, uh, having that sort of shared space, like we pay attention to other people's roles, right? Because now we can actually see them. Like I didn't, I can't see them when they're on the other side of the table. I assume somebody next to them can see, but I can't. And it's not like we're worried about anybody cheating, but it's just kind of fun to revel in other people's roles. (laughs) Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So those are, that's, those are, those are a few of the things I think having all my tools kind of in the same place. So I use notion to capture, uh, my campaign notes and uh, mm. I have D&D Beyond. And so having like three windows with Discord and Notion and D&D Beyond. And sometimes I'll use like Owlbear Rodeo if I have a, if I have a, a, a you know, like a gridded, a gridded map or, or some sort of like, like a, like a, you know, map, a battle with, you know, tokens and, and a map. And it's what's, so easy. Like they're all, they're all Owlbear sitting in there. Rodeo? Uh, Owlbear Rodeo is uh, Roll20 for lazy people. Oh. Um, probably the easiest way to put it. It is a online virtual tabletop where you can put up m- maps and and it has a bunch of default tokens, but you can add your own tokens. It has no mm. accounts. So you just share the URL and then people can hop in. There's no permissions, like which means people can wow. move other people's tokens around. But, you know, assuming we're all mature, it doesn't matter. And yeah, right. it's, it's, it's the fastest and easiest VTT I have found. Completely web-based. Uh, you know, shared from your machine. They're using some crazy technology to actually, your browser is acting as a server to pass the information to other people. So it's Whoa. very, yeah, it's really strange space age stuff, but it's completely transparent to to both the DM and to the, and to the players. Uh, wow. has a, it kind of has exactly as much as you need it to have and very little that you don't need it to have. There's a few features it's got that I just never, I never use, but nothing gets in the way. And I just found it to be far faster and less weird and buggy uh, than, than it has been for me to use Roll20. Roll20 has so many little idiosyncrasies that people yeah. who are used to it have worked on. But like, I still can't get like initiative to work right, you know? And then the d Beyond integration with like Beyond20 and things like that is also kind of hit or miss. So yeah. uh, just using d Beyond to handle all of the D&D stuff and then using uh, Albert Rodeo to handle... Uh, a, a map and minis or a map and tokens uh, has been a very effective way for my my friends and I to play. That's awesome. Great to know. Um, so I I think one of the things when uh, when we have guests on, one of the things we ask pretty much everyone is how what's your origin story? How did you get into the hobby in general? Sure. Um, so I played Pool of Radiance on the Apple IIe. Uh, was my nice. first my first foray into uh, D&D back in, I don't know when that was, 80-something. And um, I wanted to learn, like, I liked all the stats and math and mechanics and stuff that was going on, but I didn't understand. I'm like, why is my armor class going down when I'm putting armor mm. on? Like, that's weird. And how does that work? <laughs> and so I bought the second edition player's handbook. Um, I, had, I had a friend who was into D&D in the first edition days, but we were both like 10. And we didn't, and I didn't really play with him. And, uh, but this was probably when I was about 13 something like that 13 or 14 maybe older and uh so i bought the players hand, the second edition players handbook so i could understand what was going on in pool of radiance um <laughs> but i liked what i read enough and i was like i really want to do something with this so i managed to scrounge some of my high school friends together and we played what thinking thinking back on it feel feels like a very big epic 
Forgotten Realms D&D game. Like Lord Manchun was the bad guy and, you know, the players went to Zental Keep and faced him in a great big battle and we had high level characters doing crazy shenanigans. It was really wow. a lot of fun. Yeah. And so that, that that stayed when I went into college. I met I met one of my I met the best man at my wedding, one of my best friends. Uh, I met him uh, through a D&D group at college. And uh, then we stopped to play Magic the Gathering for a while. And then we all got jobs and went to different places. Uh, And then I got into online gaming and massive online gaming with uh, EverQuest for a long time. And um, I met I met a nice a nice woman in EverQuest and we got married and turned out she was a big D&D player and came with she had all of the first edition D&D stuff. So our collection of D&D stuff like you know, we put it together and she had all the coolest stuff and they all have like a unicorn stamp in the front, which is her like seal. And there you uh, go. yes, that was great. And so she and I got together with some other friends and started another D&D group. And that was like, like 20 years ago. And that one's been going pretty Man. solid since. Yeah. So now I've been playing in two, two different weekly games and, and a bunch of, uh, you know, ad hoc games. Um, so probably, probably on the order of, was it eight, about 10, 10 games a month. Um, which Holy I'm, moly. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm very kind of happy and, and proud of the fact that I can, I can play in as many games as that. Yeah. So and, people uh, might wonder yeah. like, how do I recognize the one? And I, and I think that's the, that's the method right there, right? Like she has all the first edition stuff. Like, yeah, that's right. Good- <laughs> right. I mean, that, yeah, there was lots of, lots of parts of that where, that were, you know, there, there were many aspects of marrying my wife that, that came as a surprise <laughs> and we're all happy surprises. Like wonderful, having wonderful go. in-laws, right? Having a great brother, brother-in-law oh, and, and wonderful in-laws best. who I adore. Yeah. And so that, you know, boy, I lucked out. Lucked out well, in many that's ways. great. That is, that is great. So I, I've read um, one of your, one of your books, uh, mm. the, the original Lazy Dungeon Master. And I've got one of your sort of reference guides over here on my shelf. Uh, but for people that have no idea what this is, you know, what is the sort of central thesis that, that you present to people. Yeah, so the, the central thesis is that not only can you probably prepare less for your game than you think, but in many cases, preparing less for your game will actually result in a better game. Yeah, that's that's kind of the core, the core yeah. idea of both of these books. And it's something that is not a, an observation that I made independent. That is a, a, a relatively common result when you talk to experienced dms uh in that have been playing this game for a long time like many many people it, it's it's kind of a sign of the maturity i don't know i don't know if this is exactly right but one of the potential signs of the maturity of a dm is the recognition that they can prepare less and still run a great game and in many mm-hmm. cases preparing less results in a game that would be better than if they prepared a lot so yeah that both both books kind of hung on this idea and then then the question became, well, okay, what should you prepare, right? Like, that, okay, that's a, right. central, that's a central theme, but what's the bare minimum you can get away with and still be able to run a game? And some, for some, it's zero, right? For some, it's like, I just sit down and we start going. And that's, you know, that I, I, I think I pulled on that and very, very few people <laughs> don't prepare anything. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I've ever run a game where I didn't prepare something. I've, I've come real close to not preparing anything. Uh, but I, I always, you know, have something. So then it's like, well, where do you get the biggest bang for the buck, right? What, mm. what can you prepare that really has the highest impact uh, for the for the benefit of the game? And that's that was the central premise for the original or the original Lazy Dungeon Master, and then was expanded upon from lots of you know years of of kind of studying the problem further in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. 
um, mm. which I which I feel has a more of the two. I think Return has a more solid premise about what you can get away with, what most people could get away with. I don't, I don't know about most, what many people can get away with to prep their game uh, in a in a in a style that's a bit more modular and and a, and a covers more ground than the original. Uh, lazy dungeon master lazy dungeon Ma- the original lazy dungeon master if i recall it was like here are three note cards you can fill out to and and do in five minutes to prepare your game that's probably an oversell right like <laughs> not a lot of people are prepping i don't i don't do that right and i think it was like write down a strong start like where is your game going to be i think i have this right uh where is your game going to begin what are three locations your characters might visit and what are three npcs they might run into Right. And and boy, there's a lot of other stuff that happens in a TNT game. And maybe you can improvise some of that, and maybe you can't. But the, the eight steps that are in return, significantly bigger, almost three times bigger than the steps that are in the original, uh, but but covers a lot more of the things you're actually gonna need in a game. Well, so, as I recall, a lot in those original in that original book was um uh interviews with various yeah. dungeon masters that you had you had pulled and talked to. And I was really struck by it um, because there that trend of responses does begin to emerge. And uh, I guess uh, I was going to ask, you know, what are a couple of those trends that you re- you can recall uh, being particularly important to not under prepping? Because I don't think that's what you're selling. Right. Right. But to prepping efficiently, putting your time where where it matters the most, where you're going to get that bigger bang for your buck. Yeah. I, I so I cheated a little bit when I wrote, the, no, I cheated a fair bit when I wrote the first book, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I already had the ideas in mind about what I was going to write about before I interviewed 20 DMs about it. So it, it wasn't as though I, I, I studied carefully all the results of the 20 DM. I think it was about 20 DMs that I interviewed. And then I did a, a poll, right. With a bunch with many hundreds, hundreds more. And, um, I, I don't think like I formed all of those opinions about what you could prep from the results of those of those polls and, and surveys. Uh, the mm. second book w- had a little more rigor to it than that, because by that point, I had interviewed hundreds of DMs and had surveyed. Right. I think I surveyed 6000 DMs, right? Oh, my on, gosh. Yeah. On wow. a lot of info about what people did. And that helped that helped formulate some of the some of the steps and some of the ideas. But if I if I had to kind of look at the interviews that I had done um, you know, for both books and and the the polls and the surveys and everything, uh, I think I think if I was to really boil it down to like one thing, it's about preparing to improvise. Uh, it's about it's about focusing on the things that help you uh, stay flexible at the at the table. The things that help you bob and weave and shift and move as the story goes in directions you didn't expect. Um, was a was a that, that's where a lot of DMs got to after after doing this for a while. They recognized that it wasn't about preparing things that were going to happen in the game. It was about preparing the things you needed so that when things happened to the game, you were ready to react to it. Mm. And and that that was a you know that was kind of a a, a profound shift. And then it came up again and again. Like that came up in individual interviews. It came up when you read like you know D, there's other books where people are interviewed about about you know, this whole, this whole racket of ours. And they talk about, they talk about the importance of, of being flexible. Um, and I, I pulled a bunch of players. I said, like, what are the things you look for in a good DM, right? What are the traits that you look for in a good DM? And the top three were like flexibility, creativity, and improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, those all, you know, all of them kind of come, you know, from this idea of being able to quickly, 
build a story, quickly build scenes and ideas uh, that that are a reaction to what's happening at the table instead of trying to drive what's happening at the table. Mm. So when did you when did you learn or realize uh, that you that you needed this uh, this approach? Like, what was the moment when you said to yourself, this is this is too dang much work. <laughs> I need to figure out what I can cut. How yeah. how did you how did you get started on the lazy DM journey? Yeah, so I, I had experimented with it uh, with some blog articles first. I think there is actually an article on Sly Flourish called like lazy, you know, being a lazy dungeon master or something like that. That was sort of mm-hmm. the prequel, you know, the pre the pre idea before I had started writing the book. But the the events that occurred was sort of the transition from fourth edition of D anD D to D anD D Next, which was the two year mm. play test that happened before fifth edition of D anD D came out. And I remember there was a, that. Yeah, there was a lot of changes in what the game was like. And fourth edition, so I played third, uh, yeah, I played second and third edition of D&D. I played a lot of RPGs, I played Pathfinder, I played, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but when I really started thinking deep about RPGs as a system was during 4E and the time when I started doing like freelance work for Wizards of the Coast and for other, for other companies began Mm. during the fourth edition so i was used to that style and it 4e was a heavy combat focused game battles took a long time battles were often very tactical and there was a big focus on that sort of set piece multi-environment complicated monsters you know monsters had roles that they fulfilled so you almost always had two or three different kinds of monsters in a in a battle and it went up to 30th level, which meant like the from 20 to 30, the battles got really big and complicated. The characters had crazy superhero abilities that they could pull off a lot. And monsters mm. were huge and had lots of things going on. And so I would build these tremendous set piece battles. I ran a, a, a first to 30th level campaign in, in 4E. And we'd have these tremendous set piece battles. I had, I had one battle where I covered my entire dining room table, which is like 12 feet long by four feet wide. In like oh. a spite, a mixture of red and white spider webs to represent the lowest level of the abyss, with all of these Whoa. like islands, floating islands made out of dwarven forge and minis that I hand painted for this one big event where they had to like go face this tremendous like multiverse ending, you know, construct. And, Holy smokes! Yeah, and I have pictures that I look back on and I joke with my friends because I'm like, do you remember back then when I used to give it, you know, like. And they, you know, that like, that's when it would take me like hours to set these up. And then of course they would pull some shenanigans and all of these things that I would set up would be moot, right? Like turns out that having floating islands over this bottomless abyss didn't matter because they can fly or they can just teleport from place uh, to place. There was no risk. And so I'd get frustrated because like I would, I would kind of have a way that I expected a battle to go and it wouldn't go that way. And I'd react yeah. differently and I'd come up with all kinds of, you know, crazy rules. And I posted all these on Sly Flourish, all these like different ways to have boss monsters that get, not get steamrolled or not get completely paralyzed uh, for a battle. Right. And then D&D Next comes out and I'm not used to it. I'm like, I, I you know, I look at it and I'm like, wow, this is wild. Like this, you know, characters are, are squishy and like it's kind of back to the OSR style of, you know, you're not testing the character skills, you're testing the player's uh, you know, knowledge in order mm. to like, w- you know, are they checking for traps? Right. 
You know, are they actually describing how they're checking for traps and would that actually detect it? And so there was this big shift. And like when I was, I was still freelancing for Watsi, I, I was uh, myself and Teo Sabadia and Scott Fitzgerald Gray uh, put together, worked, were, were hired by Watsi to put together the first D&D Next published adventure called mm. um, uh, uh, Horde of the, no, the Lair of the Dracolich. What's it called? God, you think I should, I should mm. Vault of the Dracolich. So mm. Uh, yeah, so Vault of the Dracolich, and which was a multi-table D and D Next uh, organized play event, right? And uh, you can buy it now on the DMs Guild. Um, I, you know, it's it's not very well known because it was this multi-table epic kind of thing. Mm. And I remember, like, I submitted my first maps uh, to to a Greg Bilsland, who was a producer at Wizards of the Coast at the time. Uh, now I think mm-hmm. he works for Amazon. I think he did some work at Microsoft. And um, I showed it to him, and he's like, "Yeah, these maps don't. This is not how we do maps anymore." And I'm like what do you mean? It's like, they're too linear. And I'm like, well, of course they're linear. Like you got to have your three battles, <laughs> right? Like how else, you know, if, if they can go anywhere, who knows how long this game is going to take? Cause I'm who still knows? thinking, of, yeah. Cause I'm thinking in four East. Right. I was like, yeah, that's not, that's not how map design works. So Scott and Teos and I worked together to figure out like, how do we mix this up? And it was a totally different style of thinking about how adventures work than I was used to. And that really got me to rethink what D&D is and how D&D works. And that it isn't, you know, like I was used to like, you ha- you start with your three battles and then you build some sinew of a story that connects your three battles together. Because that's all you're going to have time for in a four-hour game. You don't have time for a lot of role right. play. You don't have time for a lot of stuff. And now it's like, I don't even know that I consider whether something's going to be a battle. You know, I, I, I don't know yep. what's going to happen. So I don't even prep my battles. Like I just say, I know what creatures are lurking around this area and maybe that'll turn into a battle, but I'll figure it out when yeah. I'm running the game. And, and that, yeah, so all of that really got me to just completely think differently about how I think about D&D games and how people play D&D games. And then thinking about how much prep I used to do that didn't really ever come out the way I expected it to come out anyway. And then it was like, how do I, how do I rethink how we prep so that it doesn't matter what happens in the game? We're still moving with it. And, you know, and then, and that it, it, you know, it's been years now, that was seven, eight years ago. And now how I think about D&D is completely different than how I thought of it back then. Like I've, I've turned 180 degrees in many, many ways. And, and I think the results of that are in these books, right? Have you taken this, uh, that approach that you developed with fifth ed coming out? Have you taken that and gone back and tried to run fourth ed again using this new methodology no i i kind of haven't looked back i i have looked back but i haven't gone back and played 4e again mm. in you know i don't know I, I, i'd be very interesting like what was my last 4e game because <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. i knew it was my last at the time but i'm sure it was like there, we, we pretty much switched to D next and stayed there um, i feel like a <clears throat> lot of folks did yeah although there's kind of this interesting resurgence going on and um yeah, so, but I played like 13th Age, which is, was, you know, one of the designers of fourth edition and one of the designers of third edition got together and came up with their love letter to D&D, which they call 13th Age. Mm. Uh, that's Rob, Rob Hainso and Jonathan Tweet. And it's a fantastic RPG. And it really captures the superheroism, high power nature of 4E, but in a style that is a lot more flexible. It has some mm. built in things where you kind of have to. Uh, you have to improvise things because you as the DM don't know some of the major elements of the story before you go in. Uh, it brought a lot of story-focused story elements into a high mechanics game. And uh, yeah, I adore it. 
Uh, I haven't played that one in a while, um, but I, I have a copy sitting within arm's reach right now uh, because I like it so much. And and yeah, go. so that that's about as close as I've come to doing 4E style stuff. I, I don't know. Like, could you do lazy DMing with 4E? Probably. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how it would work. And I don't, I don't know. It, it'd be really interesting to see how that would work. I don't, I don't, I really don't know. So you feel like the, like your approach, um, is pretty finely tuned to D and D probably fifth ed for the most part, or have you run into folks who've, uh, given you feedback relating to them using this approach with other systems? Yeah, definitely the latter. Uh, I've had lots of people come to me. First of all, I've used it for other systems mm. and, and it works fine. And uh, lots of other people have come to me and talked about really very different systems than D&D, different genres and different styles. And uh, they they have used the, 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 the steps from return to do to, to kind of prepare their their games in those other systems. That's and it, great. And it, yeah, and it works just as well. But like, they're, yeah, the, the steps themselves are not dependent upon five E D and D or even D and D overall. Uh, they, you know, and and in many cases, like even if you say like, okay, well, my game doesn't really have monsters or treasure in it, you mm. know, well, you, you know, if it's like a primarily you know NPC focused game of of, of exploration, a, a Cthulhu style game, or something like that, you can still use all of the other steps to just skip the ones that don't support it. Or, or add some if they do, you know, add some if you need them. And that's something about the, the, the steps in return are designed to be modular that way. It's use the steps that matter to you now that you need to feel comfortable about your game and dump anything you don't. And mm. that's true. That's true in fifth too, right? Like if you're, you know, there, there are times where like I'm running a published adventure for fifth and I don't need to worry about fantastic locations because they're all in the book. Right. And mm. I might jot down like the name of the fantastic location that's in the book just to remind me that it's there, but I don't have to fill out a lot of stuff. I don't have to think about like, what are the interesting aspects of that place? I can just, I just know that I've already got that covered. Mm. That's really, that's really, really cool. So I, I, I want to make this a little bit more personal if I can. Like sure, I want sure. to, I want to call out Andrew a little bit. Um, cause, cause I love him so much, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, we have really pushed. I say we because it's like a whole community getting behind Andrew and trying to push him into DMing more. Oh, and uh, and he does a good job. He really needs to have a lot more confidence in himself. Um, I can tell that a lot of preparation and stress goes into his mind uh, when it comes to preparing. Like he's running Curse of Strahd right now mm -hmm. and he wants to my, do my, it. My justice. favorite adventure. Yeah. It's your favorite adventure. Yep. Oh, okay. I think so. Pretty close. Fandelver is great. And, and Dragon of Peak is great. But Curse well, of Strahd, as like a big campaign adventure, is definitely my favorite big campaign adventure. Oh, mm. well, f first of all, I want to know why that is. Se but second of all, I, I'm hoping, you know, just what do you say to Andrew? <laughs> you know, like, how do Bring you... Bring it on. Like, yeah. just, just so, give him that encouragement. Uncertainty. We, human being, I think this is, True. I'm not a psychologist or you know, sociologist or anything like that. It feels like uncertainty drives people bananas, right? We it don't, does, we totally. don't like not knowing th things or not knowing why things happen. We, we love cause and effect and, and we're, we're, and you know, we, we build 
stories in our head about how things in the future are going to happen that might not happen at all like that, but we still build our little stories, which I think we can channel into fake stories that we all enjoy together rather than real stories that don't matter. So, mm-hmm. so part, so I, one of the things that return has given people, I think I never, I never sold return as the way to prep your game. Right. I've always said that, like, we all have individual styles that are comfortable for us. And there are other styles that are just as comfortable for other people that work fine. And I've always said, like, here's, here's one, like, here's an approach, not the approach. Mm. But I, but I think what happened is it was like a life preserver in a roiling ocean that, that nobody really knows how to prep. There are some games that give you good advice on it. Dungeon World does and Blades in the Dark mm. and some other ones that t- spend a fair bit of time talking about how you're supposed to prep your games but a lot of them are just like leaving you to your own like i don't know you figure it out right and like you pick up the dungeon master's guide and it's like hey let's talk about pantheons and you're like that's i don't want to talk about pantheons i want to i got friends coming over in 30 minutes right what am i what am i supposed to have so there's no real permission given there's no real you know there's no real good guidance that that takes any kind of declarative approach of like try this right and instead it's like well you could do this or you could do that you know because they know that like everybody does it differently so all i did was say here's here's one approach and because it's a regimented approach it has eight steps it doesn't have nine you know and and Mm -hmm. and it, it it feels comfortable because like, oh, thank God, all I have to do is follow these eight steps and I'll be okay. And the answer is right. you probably be, you probably will be okay. There's a, the, the number, I don't think I've ever had anybody come to me and say, man, I filled out your eight steps and I ran my game and it sucked, right? Like <laughs> I, you know, that, that, pre- that whole style didn't serve me at all. And my game mm. was a disaster. Certainly there, are, I'm sure there are people who have used the eight steps and run bad games. I'm sure it's happened. And, and I'm sure there are times where they wish they had things that the eight steps didn't cover, Right. But right. generally speaking, it has it has enough going on in there that for for most people that I've you know for pretty much everybody I talk to maybe that was that maybe there's a big silent group that hates me out there that I've never heard from, but you know but the book has been rec- recommended a lot and a lot of people who didn't need to have recommended it to other people or done reviews and things like that. Oh, you see and it, it just, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So so I I kind of take that as little evidence that it's not complete crap, right? But it gives people permission. It gives it is comfortable, and it makes them. It gives them a, an end state that says, if I if I walk through these eight steps and I fill them out, I should have enough to be able to run my game, and I feel okay about it. And all you're mm. trying to do is get to that feeling of being okay. If you feel, I think that a huge amount of what we need to pr- have a game to be ready to play a game is just feeling good about it. Right. And we all mm. have nervousness. Like I'm running a game tomorrow and I'm nervous about it. And these are my same friends I've been playing with for years and years and years. And I've run thousands of games. And yet I still have pregame nervousness. Right. I'm still like, oh, what, you know, am I prepared? Do I have everything I need? Right. And, and just the act of like, well, I don't know if I have everything I need and I don't know if it's going to go great, but I went through the eight steps and I have my notes and I feel good. And that's all I'm trying to get to. Right. And, mm. and so you know, whatever style or system anybody tries to follow, as long as it is, it fits within the time that we have available to, to give it ideally not too long. And at the end we can say, do I feel like I'm ready to sit down and run this game? And if the answer is yes, then you're good. And a lot of times Mm. all you really need for that is a strong start, right? As long as I know where my game is going to start, as long as when we're sitting down at the table, they're all looking at me and I say a meteor smashes down into the mountain out on the horizon and everybody in the town starts screaming, right? And they're like, oh, you know, like now right. I've got their attention. 
you know, I've, I've set the stage and now we see where things go. Right. And you know, that even that could be enough. So it's just it, getting comfortable is, is really the goal with all of this stuff. It's not to be all inclusive. It's not to make sure you're always running a perfect game. It's mostly to just give DMS the, the permission to be comfortable to be ready to run their games. I don't know if that helped. I, I think, I think for me, the, the issue that I find myself often running into is not really knowing the best or, well, I say best as if it's, you know, what's, what's the best for me. It's not necessarily the best for someone else, but um, at least for me, what the best way is to manage uh multiple NPCs and who knows what, because in, in curse of Strahd, you've got these like factions of people, you know, Barovians know this, the Vistani know this. Yeah. And, and then Velaki is just this huge mess. You know, Dragna Carta refers to it as the, the, what is it? The Velaki knot or something like that. (laughs) Um, and, you know, it's just this tangle of all these different uh, opposing interests and people with these different goals and stuff. And a lot of times I find myself going into a session going, I cannot keep all these NPCs that are going to conceivably get involved in this scenario all roughly within, you know, the same session or two. I need to have an idea of what all these people know and Mm -hmm. what information they're willing to give up, what they're not willing to give up and what the thresholds are for when those things change. Like, you know, if the PCs do X, then this NPC will give up this information, but not until. Mm -hmm. And knowing how to wrangle all these different um, entities at once can be you just can, you can hear so him tying daunting. himself up in the knot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So there's 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 a couple things that have helped helped me and and things that I've that I've recommended that I've recommended. Um, and you, you mentioned a little bit there, one of them a little bit, which is like the only session that actually matters is the one you're about to run, right? right. Like. Anything that's going to happen after that, well, you can worry about later. You only have to worry about like, I've got friend, you know, it's for me, right? Tomorrow, I've got a bunch of friends coming over. We're going to play for three hours and then that's the end of the game. So I need to have enough material ready, whatever it is, uh, to, to cover those three hours of time. I don't need to think right. through a whole, like, you know, I don't have to have memorized every single room in Castle Ravenloft. Right, all whatever it is, ninety six rooms or whatever, oh, and plus all of their all of their occupants <laughs> and all of the NPCs and all of their motivations and all that sort of stuff. Right, right. So unless like they're going to a dinner party, and the other thing is like the players can't keep track either, right? They're, they mm. don't, you know, unless you've got like you know, Forrest Gump as your as one of your players who has ninety six names of every NPC memorized, and and you know, right. You're not, you know, they they're they're thinking like they can't remember more than three either, so. Mm. Every so often, be like, wasn't there a guy we met in town? You know, and then you like quickly go through your notes and find the guy. Like, oh yeah, this guy. But so, so part of it is if they, you know, if they're if part of the session is they're going to a dinner party and there's going to be 26 NPCs that they've met over the time, and they're all conducting their Game of Thrones, you know, at the table. 
you know, that, that, that could be a hard one, right? But generally, sure. like, that doesn't have, you know, you, you don't have That's to do that. That's every right? session I run. Yeah, no. so, you know, you don't have to have all the NPCs show up at the same time, right? Like, your player, I don't know, unless your players are, like, super into it, and they've got, like, you know, FBI big yarn and, you, you know, yarn and tack charts up on the wall of we know all one of the interconnections. totally do that. yeah. <laughs> and then maybe they're like, you know, and maybe you can help have them like keep track of the NPCs, right? So that's not a bad idea. <laughs> like <laughs> that's the, the other part is like the players know, right? They're I don't you know, it's our our it's not like we can do our best to try to build a world that feels real to them, but they know we're a human being with a job and you know, busy time. That's true. That's and like true. they, you know, they'll, you know, if they're friends of yours at all, they'll cut you slack. And if they're not cutting you slack, well, then that's a different problem. Right? That's a, <laughs> yeah, go that's a different find issue yourself you another group. Then, well, yeah, you know, something, some, some, some management, right? Right. And, and and so you know, we it's okay for us to kind of say this is what I'm able to handle. Uh, as mm. far as like improvising NPCs, you know, and right, like we're not all Matt Mercer, where you know we've got eleven thousand people that are keeping track of every single NPC we've ever put out. And building oh, fan fiction man. for them. Wouldn't that so, just like, be? <laughs> I uh, mean, that case is like, hey, you can take my notes for oof, me. Right. Um, Outsource it. Yeah. But even Matt Mercer said that he improvises half his NPCs, right? He doesn't plan them ahead of time and they just sort of pop up. Mm. And, and, and the other thing is like a lot of times I think we over-engineer. I think there's a lot of over-engineering oh, for yeah, DMs, period. Totally. And one of those bits of over-engineering I think comes with NPCs where like you don't need to have a dossier. You know, you don't need to have like 17 paragraphs of text to, to kind of define every intricacy of this, of this, of this NPC. You just Wait kind of, a minute. N- yeah, no, like one line. <laughs> like, I don't even do like, you know, I, I, a lot of times I'll just react, right? I'll just put myself in the shoes of that NPC and just react. And I, I'll surprise myself with how they act, you know, or I'll, mm-hmm. I'll pick up cues from the players about how they think this person is going to act. And that becomes how they act. And their personality sort of appears on the spot. And so all I, the hardest part for me is a name, right? Having a good uh, name that isn't a joke, right? Is, is, you know, killer. That's my favorite way to just jack with a GM. When he, when, when he says AGM, he means me. Um, <laughs> yes. What's this guy's name? What's and, this guy's you know, name? Oh, I hate yeah, you. And, and right. That's how we came up with oh the bard yeah exactly right <laughs> or th- you know uh, my new my new favorite npc thacko the clown that's going to be in uh wild wild beyond the Witchlight. so um i mean I, I, you know i've asked you know this is another thing where like i i, I try I, I try to step outside of like my own understanding of this hobby and try to understand how other people are seeing it a lot and and i pull i do a lot of twitter polls i do a lot of twitter questionnaires i spend a, far too much time on reddit reading what people are saying there i have a, dis, mm. uh, a discord server where we all chat about this stuff all the time i'm really trying to constantly keep a theme an understanding of dms particularly new dms because there's like i i think this is right that there are more dms who have only played in the last two years than there are in all of the dms that played in the time before that I feel right. like I've heard some like that too. Yeah, there's. I think if you if you think if you put the stats together the right way, I I think that that's true. That the, the amount of people playing D and D has doubled every two years for like the last five, and has, is way bigger now than it was ever than it has ever been in the past. Which means there's way more new DMs. Yeah, five E has done gangbusters. Yeah, it's for the crazy. hobby. I mean, it's right. really amazing. 
Yeah, so so learning about the experiences of DMs who have only been doing this for a year or two is really valuable for like those of us who've been doing it for 30 years, right? We learn yeah. I've learned so many new things and I've seen tremendous DMs, really really good DMs uh who have just been playing in the last few months or you know a couple of years. One of the best DMs I ever had had only been playing for 9 months and she was out, absolutely outstanding. Holy and Moses. um yeah, it's just really great to to pick that stuff up. So uh, yeah, so I do, I do like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of polls about, you know, what people find useful. And by far the number one most useful improvisational aid was a random list of names, right? Mm. Like, and, and it, it's, it's the kind of thing where every time I make like a DM cheat sheet or in the lazy DMs workbook, there's a big, I think there's a whole page devoted to just random names. Uh, Xanathar's guide has a ton of names in it. And, you know, there's. Mm. There's a lot of sort, you know, the player's handbook has name, you know, names for players, right? For, for player characters. And so they're kind of all over the place if you know where to look for them. Right. And just, just having it like in hand is so valuable. Like just having a good list of names in hand so that when they come up with an NPC, you can quickly glance at it. And your players will know like, oh, I just made that up. But it's like, so what? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think now that you say that, you know, that's, that's maybe Part of the answer is just so what, you know, (laughs) where, where it's like, you know, if, if this thing doesn't quite go how you planned, so what? Like, yeah, at the end of the day, we're playing a game for fun, you know, unless you're, you're the, the rare oddball group that, you know, is doing like a critical role show where it's for you know, uh, consumption by large amounts of people as entertainment. Other than that, if it's just for you and your pals, you know, the, the amount of pressure that ought to be on a fun situation like that is it ought to be low. Yeah. Well, and even there, we want to have a certain amount of magic, right? Right. And like being able to stay open in that moment to, you know, listen to the, uh, the spirits, if you will, yeah. you know, like you were describing, um, Mike, you know, like you, you, you pick up on maybe what the players are doing mm-hmm. and you do that and we don't want to get in our own way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's easy and I to think do. We can definitely <laughs> do that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and it, it doesn't always work, right? Like one of the things that I've, I've come to realize is I run a pretty loose game. And it's kind of seat of the pants and there's a lot of uh, improvisation going on and I'm, I'm, I'm playing loose. Right. And it's easy for me to forget about NPCs or story threads or whatever. And typically that's been fine, but on occasion I have players who they're really into it and they, they do have this like, you know, a novel kind of being built as we're playing through and then continuity problems come up because I just said something weird or I forgot about a relationship that a character had with an NPC and it breaks for them and, 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 and it matters, right? They're like, wait a minute. I thought I was in a better position with this guy. And I'm like, oh, that's right. You were right. And, And so it's not always perfect, right? And not every player and DM, not even talking about like trouble, you know, players, with common troubled problems, you know, sure. that, that disrupt the game, but even just style mismatches um, on the, on the one, like, this is something I've kind of discovered that like on one side, I've known that I've, that I, that since 4E and since getting into 5E, 
I am not a tactical focused DM, right? I don't mm. run deep tactical combat where it's like chess, where I'm scratching my chin and looking at the board and really thinking about what the monsters are going to do in order to deal with the current situation. I'm just throwing monsters around and I'm just forgetting half the powers that they have. And, sure. you know, I run, I run loose ass theater of the mind and I let the players move wherever the hell they want. I don't care how many squares it is, as long as it's cool. Right. And, and so I play, I know that I am not a tactical focused DM. So I've said that when I, you know, when I, when I recruit players, I'm like, I am a more story focused and story driven DM. And I, and I don't, mm. you know, a, I run theater of the mind a lot. So you, you know, hopefully you're okay with that. And, you know, and I'm not running a big tactical game where mechanics are the main focus. And I'll, I'll query the players to say like, how, how much do the mechanics of your character matter to compared to like the story of your character? Right. And, sort of get a balance so that I can understand if that's right. But what I've also discovered on the other end is that there are some, there are some players who are really into the story of the game, really into their character. Mm. They really become that character when they're running and they, and the world, you know, when, the, when they can see the cracks in the world with my loose ass style and that doesn't right. work well either. And in some cases they get it and they go, okay, I'm going to not hang on so tight. And in other cases they don't. Right. And, and it turns out I'm not really the best DM for them. So yeah. So I think there's, you know, it's not, it, a lot of it is kind of finding that right angle. It's not the all perfect DM for all given situations. Like the game is so wide and has so many different ways to play. That's you know, true. That, that, you know, hopefully, you know, there's a nice big Venn diagram in the middle of, you know, where lots of DMs can run lots of players. But then on the fringes, there are definitely certain DMs that have a particular style that just doesn't work with other players. So we, we have... I think done a pretty good job of exploring kind of like the central thesis here. I want to kind of switch gears as we near the end, which is, you know, what is, what are you thinking about these days? What, what interests you? Where are you going with, with your creativity? Sure. In this medium, you know, what's, uh, what's captivating you? Yeah. So, so two, two, probably three things, one of which is boring and lame, um, and then two things that I think are pretty interesting. I'll start with the boring and lame one, which is like, I'm, I'm in the middle of working on my next book. And this time, unlike previous books, I'm looking at doing, um, offset printing so that we'll actually have like a pallet of books shipped around to different parts of the world and, and shipped directly to people, which is totally new for me. Everything I've done so far is print on demand and making that transition from being a kind of a writer who's trusted print on demand to handle distribution to now having to work with offset printers and figure out distribution and warehousing and shipping and all this stuff, you know, that's a whole different world for me and one that I'm very frightened of. And I have to figure out, you know, for this next project. I might know oh, a guy for you. Yeah. But, yeah, I've Super got, yeah. boring and lame. Mm. Yeah, it is boring. No, and lame. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Right. It's kind of the not, it's kind of not the thing I want to do. Um, but I, luckily I've got people that I, that I know and trust that I've been working with and I Good. think it's going to work out, but it's just a new, it's a whole new thing for me and it's scary. Yeah, um, it is. It is really crazy to yeah, kind of deal yeah. with that stuff, and it's right. and it's really invaluable to to realize when you do need to like get help yeah, from someone right. with that kind of stuff. Because yeah, it, right. it, it can be a lot. Yeah, and luckily for me, I do I do have people who who are able to help. Have done it many times before. That's uh, true. But it's still it's just you know I, I'm so used to doing everything on my own that you know. Going into an area that I've never done before is freaking me out. Absolutely. Um, but on the, so that's not the creative side. Unfortunately, that ends up eating a fair bit of, fair bit of time because um, it's just me, right? I'm one dude running this yep. whole thing. And uh, so two other things. One is I am, which is also the, the, the theme of the book. Then, then I'm doing another 
book of the lazy dm series right we have return oh. of the lazy I, I consider it like a three book series return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dm's workbook and the new one's going to be called the lazy dm's companion and okay. the return is the framework like you, you you want help on how to prep or how to think about your game how to run your game and how to prepare your game this one builds the framework and it's the book you're intended to kind of sit and read and enjoy and then reference mm. every so often to sort of wire your head together uh, the workbook is intended to sit at your table to help you improvise during your game. It has things like random names and random monuments and random nice. items and random monsters. And here's a bunch of maps that you can use. Like when the character's like, I go down to the sewers, like, oh, sewers. And you go and pull out the sewer map, right? Yep. I right. got that one on my shelf right yeah, now. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's the second most popular book next to return. Uh, and then the third is called the lazy DMs companion. And it's there to help you, uh, to help inspire you and to help give you guidelines to make it easier to build your campaigns and to run your games. Uh, so it, it has, a, and it's, and it's really focused on the idea of a creative mind mixed with a random generator can come up with some tremendous creative ideas that That's... if we try, if we try to just sit on our own and come up with creative stuff, it's easy to get stuck. But if you look at like a theme and you go, okay, here's a theme of an adventure I want to run. Let me roll some dice and see what comes up. Oh, look at that. That's interesting. Wait, what if I did this instead? And then you, it just shakes your brain into a new area. That so was it's the intended- entire idea behind like uh, Spectacular Settlements. That was my my first book. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. The entire thing is here's a bunch of ideas that give you a baseline that's all randomly generated right. that you can be creative on top of instead of yeah, just exactly. going, here's a big right. blank canvas, go nuts. Yeah. And uh, by the way, don't be intimidated. Like, yeah, yeah good luck. <laughs> yeah. And so like one of the neat things is like um, I, I was watching a uh, 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 like a game developer conference uh, presentation that somebody did for video games and they were mm. talking about procedurally generated content and how it seems like a great idea and you have four trillion different quests that you can do and then right. they all end up looking kind of the same and it doesn't matter that the they've reflavored because of these random elements they still you know it turns out there's only six right yeah <laughs> they're, they're all just variants yep. of the six the difference is they didn't have a human brain on top of it that's also able to shake that up and shift it a little bit Correct. based on their ideas and that's something that we in the tabletop rpg industry we've got like creative brains are not our problem you know not a problem for us to get access to right but but, but shaking it up really is so yeah the idea behind the companion is um it's about half of it are streamlined guides to help run fifth edition uh, so things, things that just kind of make it a little bit easier and a little bit faster, uh, to run a story focused fifth edition game. So like, how do you do a point crawl or how do you run a hundred monsters in a battle? Uh, or how do you run zone based, you know, zone based combat? That's sort of an, a mixture of pure theater of the mind and tactical combat. What's something in the between where the squares are 30 feet big instead of five feet big. Mm. And, you know, so there are a bunch of different guides for things like here, you know, here's a, uh, here's a, replacement for the madness table that has many more options and is you know kind of less problematic and lots of different ways to sort of just shake up it's not exactly house rules almost all of them are on the dm side um Mm. and they all are compatible with the current rule set and many of them are compatible with any rpg again they're not like point crawls or something you can do in anything you know it doesn't have to be 5e uh, and then the other half of the book are these random generators. And rather than sort of the huge assortment of random tables for everything from like kitchenware that you'd find on Strahd's table to, you know, 
entire world theologies, uh, they really are sort of adventure focused. So it's like, let's say you wanted to run adventure that was like Seven Samurai, where the characters have been hired to protect a village from a bunch of marauders. And then, well, who are the marauders? Who are the villagers? What's mm. special about the village? Where do the marauders hang out? And, you know, what, what other, I don't know, there's some other fifth table in there, right? And so you roll on these tables and you can come up with entirely different cool adventures that are all built on the same model, the same quest model of the characters are are hired to protect a village from marauders. And so there's yeah. like one for Jaws and there's one for Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's one for Apocalypse Now. There's one for the, you know, The Keep and Aliens. Lots nice. of them are based on movies because we all know these movies and we know what the themes of the movies are. And now we're just sh- shaking up all of the insides until we get a... Uh, so we get something that that we dig. So uh, patrons, patrons of Sly Flourish have had access to all of this as I've been building it out. And then I'm collating it together. I'm working with a, my longtime partner, um, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, is doing the editing and layout uh, and development work on it. Nice. And uh, it's going to be my next thing. You know, I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. I'm hoping this year we'll have a Kickstarter and probably come out come out next year. Uh, but it'll be it'll be pretty good. Yeah, and it'll be slightly bigger than the workbook, either about the same size or slightly bigger than the workbook. So not a giant nice. tome, a very focused, very readable kind of toolkit to help you run a game. Um, so that's one big thing that's been on my mind. The other thing that's been on my mind, uh, which is sort of a project I'm thinking out a year, uh, is so we we you know th- we obviously know like what a campaign guide looks like like Midgard or and, and things like that and we know mm. what adventure uh, big adventures look like like Curse of Strahd and 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 you know Wildly on the Witchlight and these other ones and I'm thinking like there's got I, I want something that sits in between I want something that's got enough material that you can easily build your own adventures around it but aren't adventures themselves. And it's mm. like trying trying to get to the lowest resolution of a campaign book you can get to without actually writing adventures, right? Mm. And and the advantage is a few things. One is it gives the DM a lot more flexibility to build their own adventures and build their own stories and everything. But I wanted to do the heavy lifting. I want them, you know, I want DMs to feel like, oh, I can, you know, it's, it, you think of it like, um, you know, these, these meals, these, these, uh, um, online meal kits where you like you you order a fancy gourmet meal yeah. and all the gourmet parts come to your table and they're already pre-done and all you have to do is kind of like sit there and cook them um you know i want to i want to do the same thing with like adventures and campaigns where like imagine you're building your own first to 20th level campaign using a book that's got these central themes and villains and monsters and locations and you know all these different ideas going on and you get to decide how it's going to play out but all the materials are there in front of you to be able to do it and so that's, you know, there's, there's, there's been attempts at this. There's probably good reasons why it doesn't work, which hopefully I'll find out before I get in too deep. Um, but I, but I think there's something there. And, and another big part is like it avoids, A, on the production side, it avoids having to do a lot of playtesting, which is nice. Because yeah, <laughs> playtesting is, is really, is really nice. hard. Yeah. And it, it can take a long time too. It takes a long, we did it, right? So we did Fantastic Layers this last year and playtesting took us like four months. You know, it was a long oh, time for us to playtest this stuff. Yeah, of all like, trying to and trying to play this high level stuff in particular is monstrously hard. Um, oh, so, yeah, so I've got an I've got a story idea for that in my head already. I'm starting to think about like what that book would look like. Um, I'm talking to I'm you know, I'm starting to have conversations with 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 people who can sort of help me build this. I I don't know that I want to go the self published route with this one like I have in previous times. This might be a good opportunity to work with a bigger publisher uh, who's, yeah. who's willing to work with me on something like this. So yeah, we'll see, but that's, that's kind of the longer term, but I, I, there's something, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably dive deep into that idea 
of, um, you know, what's a product that can still do a lot of the heavy lifting for a DM, uh, without being a fully published adventure, right? A full, a full, you know, full straightforward adventure. Man, that's like really that. cool. That's something to look forward to. Yeah. I, I mean, that's probably more than a year out, right? That's, <laughs> that's probably got some time <laughs> on it, but I, I kind of want to, you know, that's the kind of thing where I want to spend like a whole year doing it. Right. So, we'll so it would basically be a campaign setting where you've got a bunch of separate pieces you'd yeah. have like maybe several villains with their motivations and stuff like that and you know these events are going on in these locations but it's it's up to you to decide how you want to put those things together or what right. kind of story you right. could tell using the pieces that you're providing in the book yeah, and I, I I had considered doing this. So the the book I did two books back was called Ruins of the Grendel Root, which is a book of um, mm-hmm. first to fifth, ten fifth, first to fifth level adventures that are all set in a huge mountain, you know, mountain lair with all kinds of different things going on in it. And um, I, I had originally d- thought about this idea back then, and I was I was going to say like you know, I'll give you a location and I'll give you lots of different options for what monsters go where and the feedback I got was like you know the answer why don't you just tell me like why why are you making yep. me figure out which monsters go where just tell me where it goes and and I said okay that's it's that's right and that's what I did and it works like it's I'm very proud of the book but the funny thing is like I'm I'm the part of the book that I like the most is the five to twentieth level campaign guide in the end of the book. Where it says like, so you've, so you got to fifth level by running these adventures, but you want to keep going. Here's a whole bunch of different things you can do to keep this campaign going for another 15 levels. And I was like, what if that was the majority of the book and the minority of the book was like, here's a first level adventure to get you started. Right. Right. And, and that would have been, you know, that would have been, that would have been really neat. The other, the other design idea I love about Ruins of the Grendel Root, I'm very proud of it, is that. It's one mountain, so you can put it anywhere in your world. You can be the one mountain that's sitting on the horizon of whatever village you happen to be starting at, or it could be in the middle of a whole range of mountains, it's, but it's one mountain, and yet when you go into it, it's infinitely big on the inside. Uh, you can have adventures mm. forever uh, inside this hollow mountain and all of the caverns and, and depths that it goes. So it's very flexible. It's not a campaign world. It doesn't require that you you know, shift out your entire world and go into a new one. Uh, right. You can plop it into any, you know, like I've written multiple guides about how this, how this book could work in Avernus or Eberron or the Forgotten Realms or Icewind mm-hmm. Dale. And like, all you have to do is change some of the factions around and change some of the lore and it fits into any world really easily. So I probably would do the same thing with this other one too, which is it won't be like a world book or even like a big regional book. It'll be like, you know, here's a location that kind of sits that you can sort of place anywhere in your world. It'll fit in Eberron. It'll fit in Forgotten Realms. It'll fit in your own custom campaign world. And it is both very small. It's a dot on your map, right? But when you go there, it's as big as you want it to be, right? It, as a DM, you can you yeah. can fit everything you want in there. That's um, really so that's, cool. That's yeah, a great so that's, idea. That's, I think that's the, yeah, I think that's, you know, these are all very early ideas, but I know that it worked well when I did Grendel Root, so I'm probably going to do that again. So as we're uh, getting close to the end here, I did have uh, one more question for you. Um, and I, I don't know, Adam might have a few more things for you, but this is the last uh, thing on my list. 
was relating to your eight steps in the lazy DM process. Were there any of those steps that you struggled with particularly before you finally kind of realized what that step needed to be? Yes. Uh, the step, the last step that got added into that was the scenes step. Probably, in my opinion, one of the more boring steps, but also mm. one that lots of people use. And uh, the scenes step, which I think is step three, um, is really about just giving yourself an outline of the potential scenes that can happen in an adventure, right? So mm. we talked about we talked about that idea of like, you only have to worry about your next session. Right. And yet, I, f I find that one of the things that helps people feel comfortable about their game, one of the things that helps me feel comfortable is when I can write down, here are the scenes I think might happen. Yep. Just so I have them in mind. And just so I have an idea of like where, you know, what, what's the outline. And sometimes it's a fork. It's not always like a linear series of six scenes. It might be, well, here's one scene and then these three scenes might happen from it. Correct. Right? And uh, so that one I didn't have in the original kind of drafts and then realized like, you know, you have all of these other things going on. You have your strong start and your secrets and clues and your monsters and your NPCs and your treasure. Uh, you know, you have all these things, but there's nothing connecting them together. There's nothing mm -hmm. that's drawing like, well, where, you know, where, how do my monsters and locations get tied together? And how do my, you know, how do my secrets, you know, fit in? And where does the, what happens after the strong start? When I'm done with that scene, what's next? And then that's where that list of scenes comes in. And I, I was kind of loath to add an eighth step, uh, but I did. And, and I think I, I think it, it was important. And the nice mm. thing is it's also an anchor because so many DMs do that. They can yeah. see their own process in this one. They could go, oh, you know, aha, there's the list of scenes. I do that, right? But I've yep. never done a strong start before. I've had one, but I didn't realize that's what it was. Yeah, but I I have that so that so that I, it's a and it, the other thing is like it, it's probably the fastest step of the eight, right? It's the one where like a lot of time, you know, you don't have to think too hard about what the scenes are going to come out of. Particularly if you've done the other steps, you already know generally what's going to happen and right. and what might get covered in a session. So it it tend and at least in my own practice, um, that step is usually not very hard, but yet feels good to have. Yeah. Uh, there's kind of a shadowy ninth step that isn't in the Ooh. book. Yeah. And, and it's one where I thought about it and it was, you know, I kind of like had the panic attack of like, oh no, I'm missing yeah. a step and the book's already <laughs> oh, out there and no. there's thousands of copies and what am I going to do? And it's, <laughs> it's about hooks, right? That, that, mm. you know, what are the, what are the adventure hooks? What are the things that are drawing the characters to want to do the things in the adventure? And that the reality can be a really is really tricky step too. It is. Yeah. And and the reality is I tend to I tend not to need I tend not to need it. Or it tends to come out in the other steps anyway. Mm. It comes out in secrets and clues, or it comes out in scenes, or it comes out in the strong start. That, you know, it it, it gets covered. And and I'm I, I, as loath as I was to add an eighth step, I'm also even more loath to add a ninth. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably not gonna end up there. And, um, and the reality is like in, in, you know, talking to hundreds of people who have used it and in using it hundreds and hundreds of times myself, including recording myself using these steps and putting it out every week. Mm. Um, I've never felt like, oh man, I'm missing that. And it really should be in there. It's like, I could see why it should be, but then it's like, yeah, but I never use it. And that's fine. Like the, yeah. things work out because the hooks kind of come out of everything else. Right. When you, when you know the characters and you know their motivation, which is step one, 
and you know where they're going to start, which is step two, and you know what scenes are going to occur, maybe might occur, that's step three, and you know what secrets they're going to uncover, which is step four. When you have those, you kind of have all the hooks sort of wired in, like that. Yeah, it ends up happening on its own. So, so yeah, that's that's you know all the other steps are pretty straightforward things, right? NPCs, monsters, locations, treasure. Sure, these are all things that we all know, right? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Thanks. Sure. Um, I think the final question that we'll we'll bring to you is has to do with our theme. And here on our theme for for Inspiration Point, we say that the secret ingredient is wow, I screwed that up. The secret <laughs> ingredient is love, uh, is. which uh, is, is is a bit of a you know it's silly, but at the same no, time, I don't like, think so. Oh, good, good. Then we're on the right track. Uh, silly, I wanted it's to dead know. Serious. We're yeah. dead serious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we. I, I think that it takes a lot of heart to, and that is that kind of special sauce. But I, I want to know how you thought that uh, love might inform your craft. I, I firmly believe that D and D saves lives. Wow! In in abs- in in physical, you know, it physically mm. saves lives. That as you know, as human beings, that. yeah, as human beings, we are we are creatures that crave social interaction. And as we get older, it's just, you know, I, you know, well, you asked me the question, so I can get on my soapbox about it, but like, <laughs> please, you know, as the, 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 our society in so many ways beats us out of the things that we knew how to do when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, you know, we played together when we were kids and we play, we, we, we imagined things together. I, I can think back to these imaginary things that I would do with my friends back then. And, you know, through our, through like bullies and our, that you know, that were our peers at the time or through like, you know, people teaching us how to be adults and get jobs and, you know, we, we throw that away. And then you, you throw on top of it for many of us, uh, incredibly, like incredibly destructive bits of toxic masculinity of like, mm. you know, being a close friend with another guy, you know, like. You, you know, people would call you gay, right? When you were a kid, when I was a kid, mm. right? If you were too close to one of your friends, they were, you, you know, you get harassed for that. Mm. And, and, and that gets wired in. And then it's like, it's weird to go over to your friend's house, right? Even as an adult, it feels, you know, like that's weird. And it, getting rid of that is hard, right? And it, it's absolutely destructive, right? It's absolutely destructive. And now we have opportunities with D and D, like it's become more socially acceptable to, to 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 go into our imaginations again. Yeah. And you know, I'm in my late forties now, and I don't care what anybody thinks, yeah. right? And so I invite my friends over, and they're in their mid forties, and we all get together and we get to play again, right? And we have this catalyst to draw us together. You know, we have this reason to get together that we're going to get to. You know, it's different than if like we said, oh, we're all just going to get together on Wednesday night. And, and they'd be like, to do what? And like, I don't know, sit around, right? Probably end yeah. up talking about work and our families. And instead yeah. it's like, no, we're going to get together and we're going to play D&D. And we're going to, you know, escape ourselves for a minute and, and laugh and be comfortable with each other and share these crazy stories that are way better than what we're reading or what we're watching on TV. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a great time. And then we're going to go home, recharge and refreshed and, and, and happy. And yeah, it's been absolutely like, like, when COVID hit and, you know, we all said like, yeah, we're not comfortable getting together in person 
you know, anymore. It like, it wasn't even a question of whether I was going to switch to online play. I was like, absolutely. I'm switching. I'm starting oh, right yeah. now. I'm going like, to, I'm going to learn it. This yeah, is I'm what gonna we got to do. Right. I have to do it. Right. Yep. And, and, you know, part of that for me is like, it's also my industry. Oh, <laughs> so I'm going to yeah, do it because that. I, you know, and I did, there was part of me, granted, like how horrible this whole thing has been. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay, you know, oh, what's happened. Not. Yeah. But on the other time, it's like, I did seek it as like an opportunity to learn an entirely new way to play D&D and to also help other people play D&D. So I was very excited about like, let's talk about what online play is like for lazy dungeon masters. And let's yeah. look at new tools and let's look at how do you know what to use and how do you get your players comfortable there and what are different styles and, you know, and that worked out that worked out really well. And I've had many players, I've had multiple regular groups and many players who said, you know, I'm, I'm, they were so thankful that we could keep it up and they were so thankful that we could do it and just say that like this, you know, I've had people like adults, you know, who have, they've had jobs and kids and families of their own who said like, you know, this is so important to me, right? Oh, like yeah. this, this ability to even online to just get together and chat and laugh for a few hours a week matters. So yeah. And that, that to me is about love, right? That, that is about our love for one another and the, 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 the love of the game and the love of each other that we can share when we're around the table, whether it's virtual or whether it's physical, um, to, to engage in that activity. And I, I really do. I think, you know, depression is really, really hard. And isolation is, you know, there's lots of studies about this, about the, the, the damage that isolation does to people. Sure. So is. having this opportunity for us to get together with our friends and our family and play a game together seems small. And to me, it's probably the most important thing I do every week. Yeah. There, I, I've run Best into a, answer. <laughs> I've run into a lot of people, um, not not the least of whom is Adam, uh, who have said that you know our our regular weekly games and stuff are like the high point of their week, and yeah, you know things like that. Where going a week without getting to play, or you know missing a session, or something like that, like it it can be a real internal blow and it can, you know, on the flip side, those, those games can be, can sometimes be the thing that really keeps you going. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it is a hugely important thing in so many people's lives. And I, I remember uh, talking with my, um, with an uncle of mine who just, he doesn't really understand the hobby. And when I kind of described it to him, he was surprised like, okay, so grown adults get yeah, together, right. sit around and play make-believe. It's that, that attitude that you were talking about, Mike. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah it's that same attitude. Cause I, you know, I, we've heard similar things, but you know, times have really changed. Yeah. My day job is uh, I am a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. And I teach this as a class. Yeah. It's so cool. And I do this as a club and it is like a big highlight for those kids. But let me, let me tell you, I mean, there's lots of work to do, mm. but things have um, really changed yeah. since we yeah. were kids and what is acceptable and what is um, thought of as, as normal, at least in my small neck of the woods, you know, like, I really see that difference that this can make for people. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the time. Yeah, I think so it's, it's, I appreciate it's just that. outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I, well, I got to thank you. Um, you've been fantastic. Is there any, 
anything else that you know you yourself would like to add that you didn't get to mention? I don't. Yeah. No, no. I'm, you know, if people dig what I, you know, if people dig what I do, go to slyflourish.com. All my stuff is there. All my articles and links to my videos and everything you can find off that one site. Mm-hmm. It's a dog pile on that. Uh, you guys definitely should. If you haven't been there, <laughs> the amount of content you put on there, Mike, is really yeah. like overwhelming <laughs> for most people. Flabbergasting. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think. When I first found your site, it was way back when you were doing the uh, custom backgrounds. I think mm-hmm. I remember you doing the Gravedigger was the first one I saw. And you just have like huge just lists of ready to use resources and things. And um, yeah. it's really a terrific site. So thank you for all the work that you've put in sure. on that. No, it's, I'm, I'm, something else. it's been a great it's been a great joy to do. Well. We were really, really happy and honored to have you with us. And uh, we definitely like to have you back sometime. I know we're going a little over time, but I think it's time to take us home. So I uh, once again want to thank Mike for being here. It's been a lot of fun. And I also want to thank our ever loyal patrons. Uh, Spike, Logan, Kate, and Falangor. You guys are all the best. And for anyone who would like to contact us or get in touch with us over social media or check out our Patreon, you can just head on over to inspirationpoint.buzzsprout.com. And uh, if you're using PC or Mac, you'll see three bubbles for Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon in the upper right-hand corner. And if you are on mobile, those three dots should be just right at the top of the page. So all that having been said, thank you all for hanging out, listening with us. And just remember that you don't have to put in all the crazy work. You don't have to break your brain. And sometimes being lazy is the best way to be. (laughs) And until next time, stay inspired. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.